As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Matt Goldman. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Steiniger. Today we talk with Mike Belsito, author of Seed Funding for the Rest of Us. What did you guys think of this one? This was interesting. Um, I met him a couple months ago and we talked. I love his story about starting eFuneral in Cleveland, Ohio, raising money in Cleveland, Ohio, and just the, the struggles um, and the the differences that he noticed between you know, Silicon Valley and everywhere else. So I, I really enjoy talking to him. Yeah, it's something that we hear a lot is people complaining about how difficult it is to raise in their hometown. And he had some good advice about how to get outside your hometown and, and not to constrain yourself. So I think there's good nuggets in here for everyone. Let's get into it. 
We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Hover makes purchasing and managing your domain simple and easy. This week, I talked to Max from Y Decision about the first website he ever made. So the first site I ever built was uh, my own portfolio website. Uh, this is way back in, in 1998 in San Francisco. Uh, I was at a trade show. I met a design company from San Diego. I told them, yeah, I'm, I'm all into Flash. I'm the best Flash guy ever. They're like, wait, why don't you send me your work? I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that uh, you know, pretty soon. And then I had a two-week crash course into uh, Flash. And I made myself a little portfolio website. Weird animations, a little bobbly heads, turning on lights. And it was funny. I got to dig that up. And, and that got you a pretty big contract, right? Uh, no, you know, funny enough, I never heard from them. Yet. Oh. <laughs> Go to hover.com and use the code satisfied customers to get 10% off your domain purchase today. HostGator is the easiest way to get your business up and running fast. This week, I talked to their marketing coordinator, Kyler, about the history of HostGator. So we've been around since 2002. Uh, Brent Oxley actually kind of created us in his dorm room in Florida. And he was answering tickets in his class. He was doing work at home. And eventually, he just dropped out and decided he really wanted to do this full time. Go to HostGator forward slash promo forward slash rocket ship to get 30% off today. You've heard me rave about CodeShip before. It's because they're an incredible team building an amazing product that makes my days happier and my code more reliable. Recently, they shipped an incredible new feature. It's called Parallel CI, and it allows for faster testing than ever before. Early access customers like Product Hunt have improved their development speed tremendously. If you haven't yet, tell your dev team to start a free trial. They have a super generous free plan, and they also offer 20% off three months to all Rocketship listeners. Sign up at codeship.com forward slash Rocketship. You wrote startup seed funding for the rest of us, and I'm curious what that means. Why is it different inside of the Valley versus out? Sure. Well, I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and have been involved in Cleveland's startup community for the past 10 years. And I love it. I love it here. We actually have a great tight-knit community. Uh, but the reality is Cleveland isn't all that different from other places I've been to, like Columbus and even, you know, not necessarily Chicago, but other smaller startup communities, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Louisville, Kentucky. And the thing that we all have in common is that we're not Silicon Valley. We're not that big uh, startup community where investments and startups is all that you see everywhere. And in many ways, we aspire to be that, but we kind of have to fight for what we get in our own startup communities. And that's really the lens that the book is written in because most entrepreneurs that get going are actually outside of Silicon Valley. So when they read those stories on TechCrunch and VentureBeat, sometimes it doesn't ring true. Even though they're super interested in those stories, it doesn't ring true to the experiences that they have. So that's really the whole, uh, the, that's sort of the whole lens of the outside of the valley, the for the rest of us perspective. And three years ago, you started eFuneral in Cleveland. Tell us kind of about that journey and, and how that got started, because I think that really sets the, the tone for this book and why you wrote it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, like I had mentioned before, I've been in Cleveland startup community for 10 years. I actually was an early employee at uh, a startup company back in 2005 called Findaway World. And I was employee number one there, grew within the company. We actually became about a $20 million company within five years or so. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun being a part of that company, growing with the company. 
And I was in a place where I was, you know, finally starting to you know, really enjoy being a part of that company from the perspective of, you know, getting paid well, which wasn't the case in the beginning, like any startup, right? Well, right at that point in time, out of nowhere, my cousin died. And it was not something my family was expecting. And that whole experience that we went through where all of a sudden we're put in a position where we had to find a funeral home. Uh, it, we didn't plan on finding a funeral home, but we had to find a funeral home. We had to plan a funeral for my cousin who was a younger guy. He was in his 40s. And the experience we went through was, was uh, really hard for us, frankly. I remember being at dinner with my wife afterwards where the only reason we were at the restaurant that we were eating at was because of reviews I read for it on Yelp. And that's what made me realize that as a society, we have more information to decide where to go to dinner than we do to plan a funeral service. And that dinner actually was sort of the whole genesis for uh, what became eFuneral. And so my friend Brian and I, he also worked at Findaway. We decided to uh, start really learning about the funeral industry. We took the leap and we joined an accelerator program in Columbus, Ohio called the 10 Accelerator. And that was in 2011 when we made that leap to start eFuneral. So what was your first step in starting? Did you build a product? Did you raise money? What was the process for it like for you? It definitely wasn't raise money at first. It was really start to learn the industry and really start talking to people. I mean, I will say I had my first funeral home meeting where I was, I guess you could call it a customer development meeting, but the reality was I had no idea I was building a business at this time. So it, this was about three months after my cousin's funeral had taken place. And Brian and I were just more than anything curious. We were really curious about why the process was the way that it was. Why weren't there tools online that could provide us with information that we could use to make a decision about where to plan a funeral service? So Brian and I, the first thing we started doing was researching. But to us, research was more than just trying to find reports that might exist online. We wanted to talk to families that have gone through the process before. We wanted to talk to funeral homes. And so I rem I'll never forget actually pulling up to the first funeral home that was willing to talk to me. It was the dead of winter in the worst neighborhood, you know, crime wise in Cleveland. Uh, and I was asking myself, what am I doing here? Because we hadn't even planned to launch the business yet. This was more, I was just trying to figure out like, what was it that we were kind of dealing with? And but that meeting, the reason why I, I asked for that meeting in the first place is I was just trying to learn and understand. And that was that's what a lot of our focus was in the very beginning, was having conversations like that, with whether it was with funeral homes or families. And it wasn't really until several months later where we realized that not only was there a big problem that we were able to validate, but we had at least an inkling as to what that solution might be. And that's when we started thinking about, well, hey, could this be a business are we ready to take the leap? What do we need to do for us to even be able to take the leap? And uh, and that's when you know things like funding. You know, how, should we find an accelerator program? You know, those are the questions. Then we started to ask ourselves. So, at what point did you actually try to raise funding? For us, we went through the process of really conceiving what eFuneral could be with a couple of mentors that were very close to me. Uh, just in my own, you know, life, you know, these were personal mentors of mine, but these also happened to be people that were involved in technology companies in the past. They had done some angel investing. 
So we were really collaborating with them a lot in the beginning stages. And I would say after about three or four months of really trying to talk to customers, learn about the market, one of the mentors had approached me and said, hey, look, Mike, if you're serious about really taking the leap with this business, and this is going to be something that you envision yourself doing full time, if you can find somebody else that you're not connected to or an accelerator program, you know, if you could find one of those things that can contribute funding, I'll kick in an investment as well. And actually the other mentor we were working with, he, he gave us the same proposition. And so when we found out about the 10 accelerator, which was actually Ohio's first state backed accelerator, this was back in 2011. It was a pilot program that the state of Ohio had created where they were offering a $20,000 grant, which was you know, interesting to us because we didn't actually have to give up equity for that as well. Yeah. In that situation, it really became, well, hey, if we could get into this accelerator program, not only do we get in, but we have two people, personal mentors of ours that are also willing to invest. So that was the point. We both still had full-time jobs at the time, but we were willing to say we're ready to take that leap if we were to get into this accelerator program. And then we had some money that was able to you know, back us up as well. How about how much were they willing to put in? So each of the mentors ended up putting in around $20,000. So that essentially they were matching what we were able to receive from the accelerator program itself. Okay. Um, so, so upon getting into the accelerator for us, it was, you know, $60,000 that we had, which the way that we were looking at it was <laughs> we needed to figure out if there was even a business here. And the question we kept asking ourselves was, Hey, if we go through this accelerator, what happens in three months? If we just realize there's nothing here and do we have, anything to, you know, keep us going in the meantime. And actually we didn't want to touch any of the, the two investors. We didn't want to touch their money, but we figured at least the $20,000 from the accelerator could maybe kind of keep the lights on at home, keep our mortgages paid as we could kind of get through that, figure it out process. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices, construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So you've raised 60,000. You guys went on to raise close to a million. What were some of those initials? And you guys raised from Cleveland too, if, from what I understand, right? Yeah, the overwhelming majority of the, com of, of the funding we raised, which was close to a million dollars, uh, came from Ohio, mostly Northeast Ohio. So what were those conversations like when you went out to pitch people in Ohio for this kind of online funeral business? What, you know, it ranged. And it, it's interesting because we got to see all the different types of funding that's available. And in fact, some of the funding we received, I, I don't think it's actually all that common in a place like San Francisco. So for instance, um, the, the first money that we received from an investor outside of our mentors, this was very common. This would be sort of the friends and family, if you will. This happened to be a neighbor of uh, Brian's parents. And he had a successful business. He actually did invest in a couple of companies locally. I don't know that he would call himself an angel investor per se, you know, in that that's what he does full time necessarily. But he told Brian's dad, hey, I heard uh, Brian and Mike are going to go to Columbus. You know, tell them to come over for breakfast sometime. I'd love to hear more about it. 
So we actually drove to their house and this was before work. We still had our full-time jobs and we were expecting this to be kind of a feedback meeting. And about 10 minutes in, he told us that he wants to invest $50,000 into the business. And I will tell you right now, that is not the norm. You know, that, <laughs> that being our first conversation, we thought, oh, okay, maybe this, this is how this is how it's going to be. It's going to be easy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But um, but we did have that experience. On the other hand, we had the experience that is maybe more familiar to people here in Cleveland, which is we went through all sorts of sort of state sponsored or government sponsored agencies and programs. So as an example, there were two different programs here, one from the county that we reside in, Cuyahoga County, and then one that was actually affiliated with one of the community colleges here, where they have money that they've gotten from the state, and they dedicate it to to technology startups. And their whole mission is job creation in their region. And they essentially provide very low interest loans, or in some cases, grants. We actually received another $25,000 grant that was free money. We didn't even have to pay back that was through one of these programs. So for us, it wasn't just, you know, interacting with angel investors or venture capital groups, but it was trying to find these interesting, very entrepreneurially friendly programs that existed that don't exist in a place like San Francisco, frankly, because they don't need to. The private capital, you know, is able to support the startups in their in their ecosystem. But in a place like Cleveland, some of these programs are, are really helpful in sort of getting the ball rolling. So aside from the struggle that money just doesn't flow quite as freely in places outside of the valley as it does there. Do you see like a sophistication gap with the kind of investors? Um, do you have to do a lot of like education uh, or at least back when you were raising a few years ago, was there some education you had to do to get people to understand and trust an online business? Absolutely. And, and I don't, you know, it's not as if people are unsophisticated as in they're not smart. Plenty of plenty of smart people here in Cleveland for sure. But when we're raising money for an internet business, the reality is most people they haven't had the experience in working in internet businesses. And a lot of investors they like to invest in what they know or what they're really interested in, right? So we there was an education for us. And in fact, I have a few other friends that have consumer internet companies here in Cleveland. And and sometimes it could be a struggle to not even just find the right investor, but find the right mentor. That certainly is the case. But I think what we've learned is that every market has their own niche. So in a place like, let's say, Cincinnati, Ohio, you know, if, if you're starting a company that is really brand specific or, you know, a consumer goods company, you're, you're in the right place because that's what people know in Cincinnati. That's a, it's a big business around there. In fact, the brandery, they're an accelerator that's really targeting those types of companies. So internet companies aren't Cleveland's niche. And yeah, we, we did, there was that education process for us. Can you think of any examples of like objections you got and how you educated and, and overcame them with some of the people you were talking to early on? A lot of the objections that we got was based off of people's own experiences, right? And so I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Many of the investors that we talked to here in Cleveland, you know, they were relying on their own experiences planning funeral services. And in their specific case, you know, they, because of their religion, they would plan their funeral at a, at one of two funeral homes that existed here in Cleveland. And so to them, the concept of needing to turn to an online platform was really strange because, well, I don't understand. There's only, there's only two funeral homes you could turn to. You know, why, why would you choose any other, you know, why would you need to choose any other funeral home? 
reality is there's over 250 funeral homes in Cleveland and they're, they're in business for, for a reason. And not everybody shares the same religion as them. And so we really had to explain the numbers to them, you know, that, well, here, here's the reality. Here's, here's what the market actually looks like for funeral homes in Cleveland. Here are the number of deaths. And, you know, that wasn't a statistic I thought I'd be sharing, you know, in my lifetime. I never knew that I would have to know like right off the cuff, you know, number of deaths, number of funeral homes, but this is the type of information we had to share with investors. And those that were, you know, astute business people, they were professional investors, they got it right away. But for some people, you know, they couldn't get past that fact. They couldn't get past their own personal experiences. And if they didn't have that particular pain, then it's hard for them to get behind investing in a startup that's trying to, you know, solve that problem. So one of the biggest complaints that I hear from companies that are getting started is about how hard it is to raise money in their city when they're outside of Silicon Valley. What would you say to that? Or do you have any advice to show people that, it, that it's easier than they think it is? Yes, there's certainly advice I could give. The, the first thing that though I'll, I'll start with is, and this is maybe one of the biggest mistakes that I see, people shouldn't confine themselves to their own geography when they're raising money. You know, for us, it is true that most of the funds that we raised came from Northeast Ohio, but we had investors from Albuquerque, New Mexico. We had people that we were interacting with that were all over the country, and we built those networks ourselves. It's not as if we had connections to those groups ahead of time. So rather than thinking about yourself, if you're in a place like, let's say, Cleveland or Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Louisville, Kentucky, if you're in one of those places, yes, raise from your local community, but start to build relationships with people outside of those communities. Don't, don't think that the ideal investor has to be from your hometown. Think about the type of investor that would be a huge boost for your business for whatever reason it might be. Maybe it's their experience in a specific, specific vertical, and then you could go and find that investor. So that's one thing. On the other hand, the benefit that you have in a place like, say, Cleveland, where I'm from, is you could be the big fish in the small pond. You know, you could get very involved in your startup community. You could be the one planning the meetups. You could be the one planning, you know, uh, the interactions that investors and entrepreneurs are looking for, right? Everybody's looking for these times where they can meet each other and collaborate. And, and, and sometimes it's too busy. You know, somebody might feel like, well, gosh, I'm too busy to plan that. I don't want to plan a meetup. I don't want to plan you know, a happy hour for the startup community. But if you're the one planning it, all of a sudden you're positioned as the leader. And so the people that are investing in your startup community, they're looking for the leaders. They will naturally turn to the people that are planning those types of things. So I think that's something that people can do right now that could actually, you know, start to make their community work towards their advantage. So if people could take one thing away from your book, what would you hope that would be? I, I would say if you're going to take anything away, it's that you shouldn't think of yourself as a Cleveland or Cincinnati or Louisville company. You should think of yourself as a company and start to really think broadly beyond your community. It, again, it goes back to not being confined to your own geography. But once you're able to do that, you could give yourself permission to be relevant to anybody. I mean, the reality is, even though we were a Cleveland company, I still went on the road. I made the road trips to different places so that we could network with people all over the country. And I, and I think that's important. And even if you don't have the funds to you know, travel and, and stay in lavish hotels, look, there's couch surfing. There's, there's friends, I'm sure, that are in all sorts of different cities that you can stay with. So that's an important takeaway because once you feel like you're confined to your own city, 
I can understand how it might feel suffocating. Once you've raised money, then you have to also build a business, right? And we focus so much on fundraising, but, but then there's everything that happens after. And I would love to hear what happened with eFuneral as you guys you know, took on the funding and, and tried to create growth. What happened then? Yeah. And you know, you're right on because actually fundraising, even though that's what the whole book is about, that shouldn't be the destination. That's not what you should be congratulated about. You know, everybody wants to start a viable business, start a growth business, and the funding can help get you there. And I, and I think it's important to talk about, but once we raise some funding for eFuneral, you know, things just got started for us, right? Then, then the real story began. And, and for us, you know, the short story is, we really created a useful service. I mean, we had families all over the country using it. We, we got plenty of, uh, you know, emails and calls thanking us for, you know, helping and actually being a place that they could turn to, but we struggled to really prove out the right business model. And we went through several variations. You know, I would say in the very beginning, eFuneral was more akin to being, say, a lending tree for funeral planning, like almost very transactional in nature, right? Families would go submit an inquiry for what they were looking for in a funeral service. Funeral homes in our network would respond with quotes, and it was very transactional. Families could then, you know, you're reviewing the quotes, you see pricing, reviews, all of that. Over time, and I think what we realized is this is a personal decision that families are making. This is a personal business. And we recognized that from the beginning, but over time, we tried to do things that made it more personal. We added things like, you know, even just things like live chatting with us so that there is somebody that you could turn to if you had a question when you were on the website or even just information and content. We tried to provide a lot more content, almost become more of the baby center of death, as we, <laughs> as we called it. But for us, we kept, you know, turn after turn, really struggling to prove out what that right model was. We got to a point after probably three or four major variations where we were generating revenue, but that revenue wasn't sustainable for us. We had a team of five, and even if we boiled it all back down to me and Brian, and it was just, you know, we just went back to the two of us, the business that we had wasn't the business that we set out to build, and it wasn't, it wasn't the sustainable growth business that we were hoping for. And for us, it was a struggle because we had this vision. We had this passion for what we were doing. We wanted to bring transparency to funeral planning. And we found ourselves after about two years, I'd say after launch, after getting going, where we, our runway was coming to an end and we had to make some real decisions. Either we were going to have to bring in outside more outside capital uh, from new investors or from our current investors. But why would we do that at this point? You know, we had to ask ourselves that question. If it was a new investor, now, frankly, we were planning on bringing more money in from maybe new investors at this point, but the message was going to be, hey, we figured out the business. Now we just need to pour fuel on the fire and, and really ramp up. We couldn't say that. And, you know, the, the best message I could give, which I, you know, we still made the effort. I still tried to, to, to deliver this message was, you know what? We haven't figured it out, but nobody has when it relates mm -hmm. to death care and the internet. And if anybody's going to have a head start, you know, we have that head start. Uh, but the, the reality is we just weren't able to prove out enough traction, you know, to be the kind of company that deserves that kind of investment at that time. So then the, the option was, well, do we turn to our current investors? And we actually had some current investors that said, look, Mike, if you were turning the corner, you know, you let me know and we'll put in a little bit more money. 
So then that, that actually made it harder because I knew that there was some money there. I might have been able to extend runway for a few more months. But they asked me that question, if we're turning the corner, you know, and are we turning the corner, Mike? When I was being honest with myself, we just weren't. I mean, we were, if I were to take that money, we would just be taking it to try new things, not to put it in areas that we've already proven things out. And um, we ultimately decided that we, we couldn't do that. I couldn't. These are people that I had personal relationships with. I, I couldn't look them in the eye and say, yes, we're turning the corner when we're not. And so what we opted to do was really start to talk to bigger companies that might appreciate some of what we built and maybe could fold it into their bigger offering. And so ultimately we did find an acquirer for most of the assets for funeral, but it was, this was not, uh, I never fired off a press release about this. This wasn't anything you would have read about in TechCrunch. This was, you know, what I call a fail sale. And in fact, we had to let go of our team and that was the hardest thing. This was before we closed on the investment, but you know, I tried to really, stretch things for as far as I could with the team that we had, because it was a great team. They, it was certainly nothing that any of the team members did to, you know, deserve of being let go. But, but I had to let them go in order to have enough time where we could even try to get a deal done. And what I'll say is the only saving grace for me is that we were always transparent as possible with investors and our employees. I just felt like we owed them that. These are people that were coming on board with us and we're taking jobs that were much lower paying than probably what they would be able to get, you know, in the open market for sure. But they believed in our vision and they believed in us. So I, whether they were an investor or an employee, I shared the good, the bad and the ugly. And I'll never forget when I had that team meeting with everybody and said, hey, this is the meeting I never wanted to have. Like this, we're at the point, you know, this is it. For most companies where they have to do something like that, you know, it's pretty somber. People are leaving and it's not a fun thing. This was definitely not a fun thing, but the first thing we all did was went out to lunch and had some beers and you know we talked about the good times and we we had the relationship with each other where where we could do that. And I, I don't think anybody was shocked because I had been keeping everybody informed up until that point, but it made me realize just how important transparency is because if we weren't transparent with people, I I don't know if you know, I don't know if it would have been that we would have all went out having drinks with each other right at that point in time. But that's that's how things ultimately ended for us. Well, that's good. And I guess it is a good lesson in in being honest with people. Um, was it a surprise to anyone when it was coming or were you guys so transparent that they knew the end could be near? They all knew the end could be near. In fact, okay. I mean, we, we had an offsite that said, hey, the end could be near. We, you know, we, <laughs> we need to turn things around. Right. And and actually had the same conversation with investors. And I had an investor that this is one of those people that they weren't a friends and family, you know, type person. This was a professional investor. They I met me for the first time, you know, as we were going through fundraising. And when I had to deliver the news to him that, hey, we have to wind things down. Well, we might find an acquirer, but this, you know, you're, you're likely not to get much back uh, for the investment you put in. His message back was, well, let me know the next time you start a company because I still want to invest in that one. And nice. Yeah. I mean, but it was just humbling, you know, to have somebody say that because it was nice. And I'm glad that, you know, I was glad that he felt like that, but it was just, it blew me away. Like here I am telling the guy that he's not going to get pretty much any of that money back. And why would he do something like that? But again, I think if we weren't so transparent, he wouldn't have made that comment. Right. I don't think we would have had that same conversation. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And it, I, I, it's a good case for, for being open and honest and not 
always killing it. So, right. And, <laughs> and that's, you know, it's funny you say that because that's the thing. We go to these startup events and everybody's killing it, right? How's business going? And actually, I, I feel like that's a question. And I make it a point to never ask somebody, how's business going? Because even if it's not going great, what are they going to say? Right? right. And I, I've been the person on the other end where people are asking me, how's business going? And I, I mean, frankly, they don't want to hear what I have to say. Right. So they, they want to hear things are going great. So well, yeah, and as soon as you say like, oh, things aren't going very well, this and that happened, like now they're uncomfortable. Like, exactly. wish I hadn't asked. That's right. That's right. But on the other hand, you know, these are the conversations that we really should be having with each other. And I think there are a few close knit founders in Cleveland that I've become really closely connected with. They're really good friends of mine. And, you know, we met together often for breakfast where we would talk about, you know, the good things, the bad things, the ugly. Th We'd be really honest and transparent with each other. And I think it helped all of us. It, it definitely helped me. I know a couple of those companies, they're actually doing pretty well now, but they, looked at those sessions as, you know, hey, I can now finally be honest with people. And that's the way I looked at it too. So where do we keep up with you and, and what you're doing today? And where do we buy the book? Yeah, we, I write often at Outside of the Valley. It's a blog that I started and it's just at outsideofthevalley.com. And really the whole perspective, as you can imagine, is about startup life outside of the traditional places like Silicon Valley, even though I'll say I love Silicon Valley. I actually think it's a really cool place. It's just it's different when you're from Cleveland or anywhere else. You could also go to seedfundingbook.com. That'll take you right to a page where you could access the book as well. And anybody that wants to reach out to me, it's easy to do that. You could just either go to at Belsito on Twitter or Mike Belsito at gmail.com. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for letting me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And make sure to check out our app discount section, where we feature discounts from amazing companies like Treehouse, Wistia, Woo Themes, all giving you exclusive discounts for being a Rocket Ship listener. So go to rocketship.fm forward slash essentials. Is it really me? Just wanna know, wanna see On the next degree, selfie, self, have a sit down Like many compounds Words and similes assimilate Mind to fate, assemble them, lay Them on a dirt face first You need to stop acting up, woman up Only it is I prosper One time See my opponent that I conquer Two times Chelsea been a reject for so long now you can't stop her You imposters with your sponsors and your concerts and your encore Fly, I've been fly like a cockle You ain't have to see flow like this Cause I'm about to drop like alcohol I mean I ain't cause the pros Got it in the pocket like handkerchief We the new trap though we ain't gon' chief In the year we smoking like Richard Well Just wish me well, I'm hoping that I'm rich and well Throwing money like I'm wishing well If you're willing, I'ma kill it What you asking for? Sick. Talking loose though we will lose Got me tight And the shit that I might spit won't even
still need my trident Feeling real mistake, my need my stick and then I might stick My fork into my stake, make no mistakes, just suppose I did At power like beside did, it's just the God inside him They say you it's the praise and raise their hands when they sing our hymns and I reply with an amen I was never the type to go and praise them All I ever really lacked was patience Just wanted to be free like a mason Uh, is that the life you're chasing? I got the heat for the street like Cajun Cause you can never decide You're stuck in your mind You're so caged in Outrageous How am I gonna take this To another location When the devil's so gazing You better hurry cause the episode changing I can't take it and I'm jaded But I played it and I made it They can't kill my vibe, it's amazing I might test